You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Ocean Currents, a show where we talk about the blue part of our planet, the ocean. We talk about science, natural history, discoveries, conservation, policy, and ways for us land-based folks to get involved. My name is Jennifer Stock, and I bring this show to you through NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of three special ocean places off the coast of Point Reyes. For those of you that enjoy beachcombing and have been curious as to the origins of some types of debris, you are going to want to stick around for today's show. We are talking with an oceanographer that has helped make oceanography much more accessible to thousands of people by connecting the things we find on the beach to human-related events. If Nike shoes or rubber bath toys washing up on the beach in mass abundance ring a bell to you today, you want to stay tuned. My guest today is Dr. Kurt Ebesmeyer. Stay with us. I'll be right back. Dr. Kurt Ebesmeyer is the author of Flotsymetrics and the Floating World and the founder of the Beachcombers Network. So we'll be talking a lot about marine debris today, trash, and some of the stories that come along with it. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Ocean Currents. This is Jennifer Stockin. You're listening to KWMR, 90.5 Point Ray Station and 89.9 Bolinas. Kurt Ebesmeyer has spent hours of time tracking floating things. He is a professional oceanographer studying things that float. In the 1990s, he found himself using debris washed up on the beaches as useful data for studying ocean currents. He founded a network of people that report the landfall of certain flotsam through his Beachcombers Network. Kurt founded the nonprofit Beachcombers and Oceanographers International Association in 1996, for which he writes and publishes the magazine Beachcombers Alert. He is the author of Flotsymetrics and the Floating World, a book co-authored with Eric Sigliano. Kurt, I'd love to welcome you to Ocean Currents. You're live on the air. Yes. Hi, Jennifer. There you are. Welcome to Ocean Currents. Thank you. So you're joining us from the state of Washington, California. That's just a little bit further up the coast here in California. I think we have a lot in common on our shoreline. So thanks so much for joining us. I want to let you know, and our listeners know as well, I have an avid beachcomber here in our studio with us, Richard James, who the, the community of Point Reyes knows very well for cleaning up our beaches and has lots of questions about some of the debris. So we'll bring him on to the air, too, in a little bit. That would be wonderful. So I just want to start off just to get a little bit of your background. How did you first get interested in studying how water moves? Well, I was scuba diving off California, off of Southern California. Back in the day, <clears throat> in 1962, my brother and I decided uh, we ought to take scuba diving lessons. And uh, we happened to wind up in, the, in, a, in a swimming pool with Roy Rogers' son, Dusty, and a bunch of other people. And we just learned how to scuba dive down off Zuma Beach. <laughs> So you got interested in movement of water at, as a young at a young age. Yeah, it was that and some television programs like Sea Hunt and no, well, you know how when you're a young kid you you uh, you have ideas and dreams and I was lucky enough to be able to follow them. That's great. 
So I want to dive right into the uh, interesting stuff about your flotsam studies. Your, t- your career as an oceanographer has taken you a couple of places around the United States. But in 1990, it took quite a turn with the Nike shoe container spill. And I imagine uh-huh. that there are several containers that go overboard monthly. But why did this specifically grab your attention, and how did you hear about it? Well, um, I first heard about it from my mother. Uh, she uh, asked me about all these Nike shoes washing up on the coast here. And I um, said, uh, well... First of all, it's hard to explain it as an oceanographer chasing currents, what you do exactly. And she said, well, isn't chasing sneakers on the current something you should be doing? And I, I said, <laughs> well, I don't know, but I'll, I'll look into it. And I did. And it turned out that um, about, let's see, what was it, 80,000 sneakers were fell overboard in five containers. And each one had a unique number. So it was like having access to 80,000 messages in bottles, which is unheard of to be released at one time in one place in the ocean. So I, I saw it as a great scientific uh, opportunity. So how did you, I mean, it must have been a mystery, the shoes washing up on the shore. I don't imagine ships report their containers that are lost at sea. No, they don't. They like to keep that information secret. <laughs> so how did you track it back to this big container spill? Well, all the shoes were from Nike, and it turned out Nike is a very green company. Um, they really uh, try very hard to make uh, environmentally friendly shoes. And, and so they were the only company that I was able to contact um, that would actually open up their books and tell me where the shoes went overboard. And so they told you where they went overboard, and you had reports coming in of them washing up. What was the geographic area that they were washing up on, and, and what were some of the questions people had about it? Well, the Nike just gave me the latitude, longitude, and date of the spill. They didn't collect any information as to um, where they washed up or when. Um, Nike just said, <coughs> "Excuse me." Nike just said to the beachcombers, uh, "You can keep what you find. We, <laughs> we have no interest in any lost merchandise that washed up on the beach." So, beachcombers were free to keep them, and many times these were hundred-dollar shoes. But they didn't wash up tied together, so the lefts and rights came ashore at different places. And so you had people up and down the West Coast from Alaska down to your neck of the woods to uh, actually trying to match up lefts and rights so that you could wear them. Even after a year in the water, uh, Nike made such good shoes that they were still wearable. So how, <laughs> how did everybody communicate? saying, I got a left shoe, it's blue, and has a red stripe here. How did they communicate? Well, uh, Steve McLeod, my friend Steve McLeod, started a kind of a flea market, if you will, and um, he would, uh, people would, he collected reports of two, two or 3,000 shoes and uh, matched them up, and for 30 bucks, people could buy them. Oh, nice. <laughs> How did he do? Did he make a profit? Uh, no, but he was a starving artist, and um, 30 bucks, I think he sold uh, something like uh, 1,300 pairs matched. So that's, you know, that's a nice piece of change over a two-year period. Wow, if we could only turn that around with the amount of marine debris we have on the beaches now into turning in a, a new... We might solve our, our economic problems here in the U.S. <laughs> So this became a new study for you uh, with tracking debris and and tracking the potential deposits of debris. What are some other events that happened after this Nike shoe event that kept you going and and tracking debris and where it might land up? 
Well, it turned out that after I did a little bit of research, um, it turned out that something like 100 million cargo containers are shipped overseas every year uh, worldwide, and something like two to 10,000 go overboard. The container industry keeps those sec- numbers secret, but um, no, I kind of gathered made my own conclusion. We're both in about agreement. I would say 2,000. I would say in the 1990s it was up as high as 10,000. So that's a lot of cargo containers with a lot of uh, debris that could be tracked. So I thought that was a great opportunity from an oceanographic scientific point of view. Now, you teamed up with a colleague um, in terms of modeling, uh, Jim Ingraham from yes. NOAA. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that he does and how that, that you two uh, complement each other's science work? Well, we were in class together at the University of Washington, and I knew that he had a program uh, that used the U.S. Navy weather data that's issued every day to uh, blow, uh, blow uh, well, and he was working on salmon, uh, salmon migration. The question was, how do currents affect salmon migration? And I said to Jim, I said, well, what if we just consider a shoe like a salmon and turn off the swim speed? Wouldn't we have a piece of flotsam? And he said, well, yeah, I can do that. So he turned off the swim speed and used his program to reconstruct where the shoes went. Oh, my goodness. So this is this uh, simulation was called it's called Oscars. Yes, ocean surface current simulator. So <clears throat> when I first did the, with Jim, I said, uh, you know, let's do a blind scientific test. I'll tell you where they started, but I won't tell you where they went. <clears throat> uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> little test. I said, I said, why don't you run your run Oscars and tell me where where do they go? So he he faxed back in about two hours <clears throat> a map showing where the Nikes went. And how how was, how was he? It was perfect. Oh my goodness! And we published the results in a scientific journal the next year. So we had a really nice uh, scientific result from the shoe spill. And then more people let us know about more and more container spills or stuff that fell out of containers. And we started just getting more and more scientific results. And we've been using the the next big one was hockey gloves. No, tub toys. There was 29,000 tub toys that fell overboard in 1992. We've been tracking those ever since. Are they still washing up? Yep, mostly in Alaska, but they've been washing up now since 1992, almost 20 years. So um, we've learned how the ocean kind of retains plastic and how how the ocean just pushes things around in great circles called gyres. Mm Mm-hmm. Do these gyres ever um, interrelate in terms of we're one big ocean on this planet, so they're all connected somehow. Have you seen items that have been in the Pacific for a while wash up in places you never would have expected them to right away? Well, uh, I guess I ha- my expectations are is to expect the unexpected. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm never surprised anymore about where things go. Uh, I know that things go everywhere. I'm just hopeful that somebody will report. Because the, the sad truth is that only about 3% of flotsam that goes overboard is ever reported. Mm. So uh, I always urge beachcombers, if you see something, <clears throat> and it looks like it might be traceable, you know, drop me a drop me an email at my website so I kind of 
the things that I guess the strangest, not the strangest, but the longest piece of plastic I know of uh, when it uh, fell in the water in 1944 when a PBY aircraft uh, ditched off the Philippines during World War II. And um, one of its pieces of plastic turned up in an albatross in uh, year 2004 out in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And... Um, Jim Ingram ran Oscars and said, yeah, God, that was drifting all that time, 60 years. So it turned out that an albatross was our best beachcomber. That was a question I was going to ask you about, because you write about that in your book, Flotsometrics, um, talking about, and I just thought this story was amazing. I'll relate this to listeners. There was a picture taken. Is this the same story? A picture taken by Susan Middleton and David Lichwager? Is this correct. The so this is a, a bird that was had passed away, unfortunately, on the nest, and it was dissected, and they found over 500 pieces of plastic in this albatross gut. There was... Yeah, it was, the bird's name was Shedbird. Shedbird. It was a... Shedbird was a chick, and it was just unbelievable. That's a lot of plastic. I mean, I've, we've talked about this on our show before, too. We've talked with some albatross biologists and a lot about marine debris, but there was just a range of items in this, including oyster spacers, big lighters, shotgun shells, toy wheels, just about everything. But there was one item in that picture that um, a reader who saw the picture published in National Geographic, <clears throat> excuse me, saw and wrote in about, and it connected back to you. And I just thought, wow, this is amazing. All these people are connected over this one piece of plastic and a picture taken by some biologists of a dead bird. And it all came back to you in terms of uh, identifying it and, and recognizing the amount of time it was had spent in the ocean, likely. Well, it uh, it was an amazing picture that Susan, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, took. Uh, it had enough resolution, and National Geographic ran a full page a spread of just that picture that you could actually read the number on that piece of plastic, and it, it said BP one hundred one, and when uh, that issue was published, uh, the squadron, um, the men who flew the uh, PBYs in World War II are, are still very active. I believe many of them are in their 80s. And they saw that and they said, well, that's our squadron call number. BP-101 is a squadron of PBYs. And they, the, the internet uh, lines just went red hot and they started talking and talking and talking. And they, and they said, yeah, that's most likely a piece of uh, old Bakelite from uh, the, their squadron, one of their planes, was ditched, and then, but what didn't happen until I started asking Jim Ingram about Oscars. I said, Jim, is it possible that a piece of plastic could have been floating from, um, you know, that time, uh, 1944 to the present? And um, the only way we're going to know is if Oscars can run run that long. And he says, I happen to have the data. <laughs> Says <laughs> the data went back to about 1944, and um, lo and behold, he ran the drift of that piece of plastic every day, all the way up to the present, and it never hit land. Wow, incredible! I just it really kind of brought home to me how just about every piece of debris has a human story, and some of them are more interesting than others. But it this one was quite interactive in terms of bringing people together, and I just thought that was incredible. Well, my view is every piece of every piece of flotsam has a incredible human story if it could only tell us. Right. Well, <laughs> and one, once in a while, we're lucky enough to uh, pick it out. Like, a, for example, what comes to mind are, are surfboards that's sitting in front of um, 
uh, beachcombers' uh, houses. I'll walk along, and I was happened to be up near Ledbetter Point, and I saw a, a half of a surfboard with this 14-inch uh, diameter shark bite taken right out of it. Wow. Yeah, so we'll never know. <laughs> Was there somebody what that's on the board? All about. Interesting. Yeah. So for those tuning in, I'm talking with Kurt Ebbesmeyer, an oceanographer and a flotsam specialist with monitoring things that are washing up on our beaches and track, tracking their sources. Now, Kurt, a real big part of your work is really based on numerous people on land that are combing the beaches. How did you get this network established in terms of how people can communicate? Was it just all by word of mouth in terms of, I found this cool thing, and someone would say, call Kurt Ebbesmeyer. How did you get your network set up? Well, I, my dad was dying of Parkinson's, and we had the, the Toy Story was running pretty hot. And we had already done the, the the sneaker story and the drifting hockey gloves, and the information was coming in so fast. And my dad said, "Hey, you need a you need a you need a newsletter." <laughs> and Dad's physical therapist Jim White happened to be there. He said, "Well, if you write it, Kurt, I'll, I'll I'll print it." And Mom said, "Well, okay, I'll make the mailing list." And before you know it, I was backed into a corner, and I was doing a <laughs> newsletter, and we just finished our 61st issue, so it was 16 years ago. And um, so now we have a website, flotsometrics.com, and newsletter goes out four times a year, and there's an incredible network around the uh, untapped network of people who find things but had no place to report. Interesting. So is this only in the Pacific, or do you have this as a worldwide network? It's worldwide. Wonderful. So it's it's pretty it's pretty cool because uh, people find something and they they just happen to report it and before you know it there's a an incredible um, story that sort of will sometimes jump out. What is are you on the beaches yourself, combing on a daily basis or? No, I'm I'm unfortunately too far away and and um, it takes me a lot of time. I'm a writer. An investigator, and I spend one or two months a year on the beach. But I find I need a balance between being on the beach, operating the network, investigating what people tell me, and uh, that kind of thing. So it's to me, if I if I had my druthers, I'd spend all my time on the beach. But <laughs> but then I wouldn't be able to do the newsletter. And I think part of the fun is finding out what Flotsam is trying to tell us. What is what is one of the more memorable stories in your mind that you just were quite astounded by in terms of tracking down the source of some flotsam? I'm I'm amazed by all the survival suits that wash up with human remains inside. I, you know, I, survival suits are supposed to tell you that, oh yeah, I got my survival suit on, I'm going to live. And sometimes people just aren't found and the survival suit washes up months or years later with uh, with remains still in them. so, And I'm also amazed by people who will walk by human remains on the beach and never report them because that may be the only part of a loved one that will bring closure to a family. So I, I, I'm, I'm, the, the human dimension of remains on the beach is, uh, always just amazes me. Wow, that's amazing. You have, through your network a way to bring people together to kind of share some of these events. These are called beachcomber fairs. How often do you do these, and are these something that other people that are not beachcombers can come to and learn about? 
Oh yeah, there's I I uh, there's about there are probably a dozen around the country. Uh, I can't uh, my limited uh, retirement. I cut my salary forty percent thirty years ago to do this kind of stuff, and so it, you wind up with a retirement that's pretty meager. So uh, I can only afford to go to four of them, and I I go to two here in Washington, and I go to one in Florida and one in Sitka, and um, they're open to the public, and we usually get. Uh, you know, thousand, two, three, four thousand people come by, and I'll be sitting at my table full of trash, and and people say I found this and I found that, and and uh, I take pictures and try to figure out what it is. So it's a, it's it's a wonderful. Um, they they usually last two or three days, and the the events are on the back of my newsletter, and uh, I just hope that people will come by and tell me what they got. It's sort of like an antique road show, but it's. The Antique Roadshow, instead of being my, uh, sort of land-based, it's uh, all ocean-based. So interesting. I would love to go to one of those. Just find so many questions when you come along the beach and find certain items. What are good seasons for beach combing or for finding certain things? And I'm sure this, this varies geographically, but how about here in California, or I guess I should say in the North Bay near Point Reyes, what would you consider good seasons for finding good items? Well, it, every beach has its own particular couple of months when it's best, and those months are going to be different from beach to beach. Um, like on Washington, it's March. March is the March, April is the best time along eastern Florida. It's going to be September, October, November. The point raise, I I don't know the um, exact timing, so I um, I don't know. There's a I don't know. The exact. I don't. I'm not familiar with the timing. I haven't got enough reports to figure that out. But there are some beaches down there that stuff washes up. Part of your coast is known for its upwelling, and that brings stuff up from the bottom. So I've been learning from Point Reyes area that you know not all flotsam comes from the surface. Some of it is just upwelled from the bottom, and. Uh, so it's a whole new dimension being opened up down there, and I don't know the time. I would guess that the upwelling season is uh, the time for a lot of the deeper stuff to come up, and you can tell by the fog. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I have a, a question from Richard Lang, who's a, a local artist and an avid beachcomber out here on Kehoe Beach with his wife, Judith, and I believe you've been in touch with Richard um, in the past, he sent in a question to you about a lump of coal, which I'm supposed to ask you. Yeah, about. Richard and Judith, we've been corresponding for <laughs> years. I've always, I've always wanted to get down to Point Reyes, but um, it's just tough. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is what Richard write and wrote, and I thought it was an interesting question. It relates to this seasonality in terms of when is mm-hmm. when do more things come up? And he writes, just can you describe a seasonal ebb and flow of plastic, mostly between November and April, which you know, that's interesting. That's an, a transition between before upwelling season that he's asking about. He said they had a clean beach in September 2010, but a mess by March. The plastic arrived earlier than usual this year in 2010-2011, but then it all, dis- all but disappeared by February. But then it came in with a vengeance by March. And then in July 2010, they gathered over 80 pounds, I guess, in that one day. But in the 12 years they've been out on Kehoe, they said this past year was quite weird in terms of things coming and going and the timing of it all. And 
now that you talk about the upwelling, maybe maybe that's one of the main forces here. But just curious, if you have any thoughts about that? Well, it, yeah, what comes to mind is the uh, weather across the Pacific has um, gone through and uh, has about a 30-year cycle to it. And um, up, up here um, in Washington, it'll be uh, wet you know, dry and and it'll be dry and warm for about 30 years, and then it'll be wet and cold for 30 years, on average. And these fluctuations are maybe 10, 20 percent of the normals, but they're pretty noticeable. And we had about five years ago, we had a shift um, from the uh, warm and dry to the wet and cold. And uh, every year, Jim Ingram runs a uh, an index with his uh, drift model Oscars. And this year, being uh, ending in March, the uh, took a dramatic uh, drop. The uh, uh, really strange—we'd never seen a drift like this before. To where we got um, Seattle. Our weather's more like Southeast Alaska, and Southeast Alaska is more like Kodiak. And I would, the whole weather patterns have been um, right now. It's feeling like fall. So. And my correspondence in France and other places, the weather is really different. So there's something happened uh, this year, um, and I don't. It's too early to tell what it is. But um, in 2010 was the largest glass ball year since 2003. Uh, there seems to be like a seven-year circle. And 2003 was the largest since 1996. So 9603 and 10 are uh, about seven years apart. And that just happens to be the orbital period of the uh, North Pacific uh, subtropical gyre that goes around the Great Garbage Patch. So there's, we're beginning to get some hints that these gyres kind of wobble and there may um, modulate the El Ninos and so forth. So it's a new a new player in the climate drama. Very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. I have Richard James here in the studio, and he was nodding his head that, yes, last year was a very good year for glass floats. I guess it's a, the treasure here in Point Reyes to find. Yeah, every ocean has its jewels. In <laughs> the North Pacific, it's glass balls. In the North Atlantic, it's sea beans, tropical seeds dropped by the jungles, and which wash all around the uh, uh, North Atlantic and um, so every ocean has its wonderful jewels. Well, we're going to take a, a short break right now. I'd like to ask you a little bit more about sea beans in just a little bit. If you would just please hold on the line. Sure. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. Stay with us. Those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Ocean Currents. And this is Jennifer Stock. I've been talking with Kurt Ebbesmeyer, an oceanographer who tracks flotsam. And we will be back in just a minute to continue our interview. Um, you're listening to Ocean Currents. For those of you just tuning in, and I have Kurt Ebbesmeyer on the line with, with us from Washington State. And I also have a uh, local beachcomber here, Richard James, in the studio. And, Richard, I'm going to bring you up here on mic, too. Welcome to Ocean Currents, Richard. Hi, Jen. Kurt, I just wanted to come back to your talking about you're talking about jewels. Every ocean and basin has its jewels. And some people have asked me in the past about sea beans, and I did not know what those were until I was going through your book and reading, and I had no idea what a big deal sea beans were. Is this more of an Atlantic ph phenomenon? And can you go over again what these are from and 
What are sea yeah. beans? Well, they're, they're a worldwide phenomena. Every every uh, tropical jungle uh, has its giant uh, vines that grow through the canopies of the jungle, and they make these produce these seeds. And there's about a hundred species that are so hard they can float for forty years. Wow! So these things are evolved to. I, I take it distribute by being on the ocean. Correct. Um, Forty years gives a lot of time, and they <clears throat> they remain viable for perhaps so I would guess up to maybe five years. Uh, coconut will remain viable for maybe six months or so. Um, but these other seeds are incredible. Um, a friend of mine, uh, John Dennis, started floating some up in 1985, and. Uh, Ed Perry kept up the experiment, and we've been running this experiment all these years, trying to see how long these can float. We've still got eight species that are still floating after 40 years or so. So it's, they're incredible. So what the jungles do is they say, aha, <laughs> we'll just drop them in the, in the, like the Amazon, and the Amazon sends them out into the ocean, and a lot of them go right over to Europe. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Have you found them here in the Pacific? What do they look like? Um, there's one that's called uh, the sea heart. It looks, it's about the size of a uh, fish in your palm of your hand, two inches across. And they'll, they grow in Southeast uh, Asia, and they'll come over here, and they're not very many. And, you know, our coasts are kind of rocky, so it's hard to spot them. You really need to be down on your hands and knees. And uh, once you get your eyes tuned, though, uh, you can find them. Um, but the best I've best beachcombing I've had so far would be down in Costa Maya. We were down in the uh, Shankan National Biosphere in Mexico, down toward Belize, and uh, there were, I think, five of us found 4,000 seeds in a matter of uh, six days. Wow. <laughs> so I, I've yet to find a sea bean. Richard, have you seen any sea beans on your time here in Poirier's? Not to my knowledge. I'm, I'm making notes to... <laughs> Add to my too. radar. Yeah, <laughs> very interesting. <laughs> I love it. You were talking. You've been to a couple of different places. There is there a destination that you're just dying to get to in terms of investigating the flotsam and and seeing what's there? Oh, about everywhere on the planet. <laughs> Anywhere, <laughs> huh? There's a million miles of shoreline on the planet, and uh, can't cover it all. But flotsam uh, accumulates in about 10% of it. So if you're a beachcomber, the first thing you do is um, you say, well, I can. I got about 100 miles I can go to here. But you, you're going you're gonna to know that, oh, maybe just a few miles of it is where about 90% of all the good stuff washes up. So it's like fishing holes. If you know, if, you, if you're a good fisherman, you'll know where to fish for, for best spending of your time. So... Beachcombers kind of know all the little nooks and crannies, just like surfers. Surfers know all the little places where the, the waves are just right. Interesting. Are there certain areas, I mean, you read about graveyards, flotsam graveyards. Are there certain areas that are just consistently inundated with, with debris from the ocean? Yeah, like the Junk Beach, one of the best in the south, near the south point of Hawaii. Incredible amounts. Before it was cleaned up, the plastic was 16 foot thick for a couple Whoa. of miles. Uh, the Great Bend of Texas is really cool. Um, stuff from all over the Caribbean and um, North Atlantic kind of collects along that, uh, from say Padre Island up to about uh, Matagorda, Texas. And I like to go down there and hang out and and. Uh, so that's, that's really cool. Sea beans, 
Uh, it's just incredible, the junk. Most of the junk from uh, Hurricane Katrina that washed out of New Orleans went right on down there. Speaking of natural disasters, I think Richard has a question since he's concerned for his health in the next few years as things might be coming across the Pacific. Richard, did you want to talk with Kurt? Sure. Hi, Kurt. It's a pleasure. Hi, Richard. To, pleasure to talk with you. Um, given that I'm on the beach around here a lot, people are uh, asking me often, one, do I see tsunami-related trash that's washing ashore? And I generally say, no, I don't think so. And uh, Richard Lang, I know Richard and Judith, and we, we joke and half don't joke. Um, <laughs> are we going to need Geiger counters for the stuff that we find on the beach? So my question to you is, can you explain the expected landfall of the tsunami stuff? And can you address the radioactivity of any of that? Uh, yeah, I, uh, those, are, those are really good questions. Uh, on my website, I've been trying to put up what Jim Ingram uh, shows as where the debris field is. And it's about it, the leading edge is coming toward Midway Island. It's about the size of California, the uh, debris oh field. Gosh. It's moving slowly at about maybe six, seven miles a day. And I would guess that um, you know, might start seeing the leading edge of it uh, maybe next year. Um, so... Uh, Go to my website. I've been trying to put up every month where where the uh, debris field is, uh, and then uh, as to Geiger counters, I my own view is if I lived on the beach and it was next year, I'd like to have a Geiger counter for the following reason: um, liquids are going to dilute so much that I doubt that you'd ever see any radioactivity from just pure water or things dissolved in the water. But if you, if your listeners can bring up the image of when the reactors at what Fukushima, I forget uh, the name of the reactors, but they exploded. Do you remember the big solid objects that went up in the air? Those, those are particular objects, and if they fall in the water and float, they may be hot, and in terms of radioactivity, but they're not going to, how should I say, dissolve. So it's possible that something washes up on the beach is still hot and we're not going to know about it so um and there's just not enough scientists to go out and measure every piece of flotsam so uh, and i think geiger counters aren't all that expensive so um, i'm urging beachcombers if you can afford to get one uh, carry one with you next year year 13 and and uh make some your own sit make some own measurements it's like the Citizen astronomers, they find uh, remarkable things that scientists miss. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we had a 1,000 beachcombers each out with Geiger counters next year. We might find some things. What are the levels that you would be concerned about if you were seeing some levels appear on your Geiger counter? I don't really know. I'd, I'd, if, if I got any hits at all, I'd be concerned. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I would, I would actually keep a logbook. That's what I always keep my little brown day book in my pocket. And anything interesting, I take a picture. I take my cell phone out and take a picture and send it back to my computer, and uh, think about it. But uh, uh, the best you can do is if you if you get any hits, uh, mark down the date and time, and location, take a picture of what what it was. If it's really hot, and your and your Geiger counter starts going nuts, I would call the police. Oh boy. <laughs> you know, about about three months ago, I found a waveguide. I don't know if you know what a waveguide is, but it's a conduit for radio waves. Uh huh. And it's about three foot long. It's made of bronze. 
very expensive looking item, and it was wrapped in bubble wrap, and that was inside a sealed bubble wrap bag. Interesting. And um, I, I mean, it's bronze, and so it's something like that. If that were to have originated from Fukushima, um, well, I, that, I, was just, that, I was just out on the beach, Richard, up here at uh, near Forks, Washington, and I had something just like that washed up. It's kind of bronze. It's a directional waveguide for um, for. Uh, I'm trying to say uh, 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 cable cable operations, and it was all in its box and everything. Maybe this is from the same ship. You know, I showed it actually to our resident uh, transmitter wrangler mm-hmm. here, uh, Richard Dillman, and one of his friends uh, suspected that it was a 12 gigahertz frequency. If that means anything, it's a micro. You send me send me a picture and um, the specs on it. I'll compare it with the specs that uh, John Anderson at Fort. She found one. Sounds like it. It's about it's it's in the palm of your hands, about four inches across, highly machined, has has many 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 specification parts, and it looked like it was for um, uh, uh, cable cable operations. Yeah, I'll send you a picture. This this is gray and it's covered with part numbers and manufacturer yeah. numbers, so I can yeah. I can get you that. Yeah, that would be a. Maybe we're dealing with a spill. We also had a bunch of refrigerator doors of small and, and refrigerators themselves, about two foot tall, too small, and uh, Toshiba, Magic Chef, and I forget the other one, um, or the brand names on them, but just up at Forks we found three or four. I'm wondering if there was a container cargo spill of uh, small refrigerators. I've only found one fridge, and it was up on Tamales Point a couple years ago. But it was a, it was old, and it was a ship-borne refrigerator. And I found it two months later, and it was just pulverized into pieces. And I, this, these are pretty new, but they're we're finding most of the doors uh, in the last month or so. So it's too many to be just uh, haphazard. So something's going on. Interesting. I'll keep my eyes peeled. Richard, what are some other items that you want to ask Kurt about that you found? You've been out here a lot. Richard collects tons of garbage off the beach. He's a viable cleaner-upper here, helping to improve the habitat for sure on Point Reyes National Seashore. But he's always emailing me interesting stories, and I'm always jealous that I'm in an office and he's on the beach. <laughs> well, you know, last year, Curtis, you were mentioning how um, you know last year was a big year for things. And I've I've only really been doing this seriously for the past three years, I believe it is. And this year is pretty much a a desert. The ocean is not giving up what it's holding for the most part. But last year, the ocean was more than happy to give up. I could clean a beach, the same beach, three days in a row and get the same amount of plastic every day. Mm -hmm. And there were times that it it seems like almost like the deep, I called it like the deep gyre, like the gyre got bumped really hard. And I I found a a full-face motorcycle helmet that had probably 20 pounds of gooseneck barnacles growing on it. Mm-hmm. And when I picked it up, it was in the surf. Oh, about 40 crabs, live crabs fell out of it. And so things like that, that, that to my layperson's mind, that thing has been out in the ocean for a long time to develop that growth of barnacles. Is that a correct observation? Yeah, particularly long gooseneck barnacles. Was it still floating, you think? Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, as you know, the heavy side goes down. And so as the barnacles grow, they just they tend to keep that as the keel. And then yeah. whatever's facing up gets baked by the sun and nothing grows on it. So I found a helmet. 
I found lots of those big bowling ball sized net floats, those black net floats. Yeah. That would have, you know, nine, ten, twelve inch growth. The plastic ball was lifted off of the beach, resting on a foot of barnacles. Well, that that helmet strikes a chord because it may be traceable. Uh, they all have serial numbers. I still have it. It's sitting down on the beach. It's it, it when you have barnacles on things, they they smell rather bad. So I've learned to leave those on the beach for months to dry out. What I usually do is I'll try to knock off the big ones and then. Uh, Come home and want a big garbage bucket and put some Clorox in there. If it's really an interesting piece, I'll put put it in a bucket of uh, you know pretty uh, undiluted bleach and and in about a month in it, I can start getting close to it. And uh, now those helmets sometimes have decals that are really traceable and uh, the serial numbers. You never know. I'm I was just in, a, in Italy in a crime scene investigation conference on drifting human remains, and you never know when something uh, comes from a crime scene. Wow. Interesting. Well, you know, I, that helmet's still out there, and it's still full of desiccated... Now they're now desiccated barnacles. I'll, uh, I'll, maybe I can gather it up and not destroy my car with the odor of barnacles. Uh, yeah, be, maybe, <laughs> you, maybe you can uh, have some, uh, like some surgical aspects to it and see if you can't get some serial numbers off it. <laughs> it's a unique it's it's not just a white or a black helmet. It's got a unique decal. It's red and gray and black. So uh, yeah. Well, so, somebody a lot of times uh, noted artists do those things and sometimes those are really traceable. Interesting. Well, Richard, you got some work to do here. Well, what so when I find things like that, am I am I correct in my assumption that that stuff that has the barnacles on it is from deep within. The, I mean, it's trapped in a place where it's it's not been released. Is that a correct assumption? Well, I would I would say rather than deep, I would say it came from far away, maybe um, something like that. It's not unusual to find something from Japan that comes over here and it's just loaded with gooseneck barnacles. Like I can think back uh, to earlier times of you know boats, skiffs, just so covered and over the boat overturned that the barnacles were two foot long and the boat was barely discernible but it had come from japan and in a couple of cases uh, the beachcomber beachcombers traced the boats right back to japan through the coast guard Hmm. i have a question that since both of you are talking about barnacles and whatnot i I know these pelagic barnacles they're not going to survive at the shoreline but i'm wondering kurt have you talked with any biologists in terms of um, are, is flotsam a viable way of invasive species being transported? I know that's a big deal with cargo ships offloading ballast, but now that we have all this extra flotsam in the last century or so in the ocean, is it possible for some non-native species to actually make it to a new habitat? Well, I know of cases. It's a really, really good question, and I'm not aware of any uh, biologists investigating that, but I do know that like across the Atlantic, some species of clams and little uh, you know, bivalves have made it from uh, North America over to Europe. I don't know about survivability, but they, they made it alive. So I would guess that flotsam, there's no doubt in my mind that flotsam does transport species from Asia over here. It's just, um, is there enough there to establish a new population? I, I don't know. But it flotsam, there's so much flotsam in the ocean that um, I would guess that it should be looked into. It's interesting. I just was had these images of these living things crossing over, and if Richard's picking them up, and suppose this 
crab comes off, that's it's like, oh, a new zone. I, I have a children's <laughs> book in my mind spinning here. Well, you know, I, I have found these five-gallon plastic jugs that I do think come from Asia with mussels on them that I've never seen around here. They're definitely not native mussels. Then, then what I would do is go to uh, a biologist with lots of gray hair who <laughs> <laughs> really knows the species and see if you can't get it identified. You may... There have been cases of transoceanic um, species coming across on flotsam, but it took somebody who really knows their biology to get this identified to species level. I'll see if I still have some of those mussels. They're real. They're beautiful, and they're 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 different. They're not the kind of mussels we have around here. Yeah, you, you, you need, yeah. You probably need to get them. Um, um, uh, what do they call them, preserved, and I forget what kind of solutions they used to use for aldehyde, but that's a no-no now. I forget how they're storing them. But uh, in the 1800s, they used pure alcohol to store specimens like monkeys out of Africa and so forth. And and um, I'm not sure. When I was doing the, the biology, for, it was uh, we used to use formalin and formaldehyde, and um, now we don't do that anymore. But I've forgotten where the science has gone. But um, the best thing you can do is preserve some specimens um, and then get them, get them identified. It's a lot of work to find the right person, but it can, it can be real scientific gold. We'll have to get you in touch with some people around here. There's quite a few marine institutions in the Bay Area, so we'll mm-hmm. have to link up Richard with some, some Yeah, I would go to books. the California Academy of Sciences first and... Maybe they have kind of an antique road show, and you get, like, here the Burke Museum opens up its doors once or twice a year, and people can bring in anything <laughs> for the experts to identify. <laughs> but the California Academy of Sciences is so open, and they have such a long tradition of uh, citizen science that um, I guess that's where I would head first. I'll have to give them a try. Uh, we just have a couple minutes left here, Kurt. This has been so enjoyable. I really love hearing these stories. Is there one item that you're waiting to hear about somebody reporting to wash up somewhere? I just operate on the, I expect the unexpected. So I keep (laughs) my mind, I keep my mind totally open. I try not to be like a racehorse with blinders. I just open to considering anything. I, I find that if I kind of limit myself that I overlook the gold. Yeah. So I I really like to um, just be consider myself pretty open to things. Um, it's like who would have guessed sneakers? Who would have guessed tub toys? Uh, all kinds of things. Who would guess a, a motorcycle helmet might be um, key to an important uh, case? It, for all we know, that motorcycle helmet that Richard has has some invasive species in it. <laughs> Yeah, we need to keep you under control there, they're, Richard. They're dead now. <laughs> yeah, but they're maybe still identifiable. So can you repeat again for listeners how people can get involved with your network and get in touch with you if they find something interesting on the beach that they'd like to get more information on? Well, if you go to flotsametrics.com, it's www.flotsametrics.com. You'll, you'll see samples of my newsletter. You'll see where the tsunami debris field is supposed to be. Um, you can They have a lot of video links and stuff like that. So um, anybody wants to contact me, there's a contact uh, there. So... Uh, 
I would love to see uh, Richard can just go there and start sending me pictures. You just never know uh, what what really turns up, what the ocean really wants to tell us. Care, careful what you ask for, Curtis. I I always have my camera on the coast. Please send me <laughs> if it, you, that 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 motorcycle helmet could be really cool. Maybe from Japan. Oh, I'm gonna. Go, I, it, I know. It, I know. Right, where it's sitting on the beach right All now. Right. So I'll go check it out. <laughs> You're gonna have to report back to me so I can share it on the air with our listeners. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Kurt. Thanks so much for your thanks, time, Jennifer. And I'm sure we'll, you'll be in touch with folks from Point Reyes real soon. That'd be cool. All right. Take care. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. We've just been talking with Kurt Ebbesmeyer. He is the author of Flatsometrics and the Floating World, How One Man's Obsession with Runaway Sneakers and Rubber Ducks Revolutionized Ocean Science. The chapters reveal incredible details associated with studying the movement of water. There's chapters on messages and bottles, sneakers, castaways, the ocean conveyor belt, the synthetic sea. Nearly every item we find on the beach has a human story connected to it, so it's an incredibly interesting and informative book that if you're anywhere interested in beach flotsam and things you might find, this would be a really great book for you to check out. I'm going to pull a quote that I pulled out of the book. I just thought it was great. It kind of reminds me of Richard. Going to the beach and ignoring the rack line is like going to Disney World and looking only at the parking lot. Um, And that's a quote from Ed Perry and Kathy Katz. They are presenters at the fourth annual Sea Bean Symposium in 1999. And I got that right out of the book. Pretty interesting stuff. We are coming up here on just the top of the hour, and I wanted to leave you with just one little piece of information, um, something to stay tuned to with KWMR. Here locally at uh, Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, we're going to be going out in a couple weeks with an autonomous underwater vehicle to Bodega Canyon, an area that has not been explored. This is a submarine canyon just north of the Cordell Bank Sanctuary. The canyon is about 12 miles long and nearly one mile deep at 5,249 feet or 1,600 meters. And we will be posting pictures and updates on our Facebook page. You can just get on Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary and like our page to keep up on news related to that. But KWMR News will be following the story as well and hopefully producing a story about what we find from this exciting opportunity to explore an area that we haven't been yet and to learn about the seafloor habitats down there. We know the surface waters are very productive. Lots of whales and seabirds typically over there, but we don't know what's down below. So we're just about out of time here. Uh, it was so entertaining listening to Kurt, Abismeyer, and Richard. Thanks so much for coming in and checking a little bit about some of the things that you've collected. It was great. Thank you, Jen, for having me. It was a pleasure. And I want to hear back about your helmet so I can report out to everybody. Will do. All right, cool. And for those of you that want to hear past episodes of Ocean Currents, you can always tune in um, at Cordell Bank, C-O-R-D-E-L-L-B-A-N-K dot N-O-A-A dot G-O-V for past episodes and our podcast. And you can hear all the past episodes there, including this one. This will be hosted in about a week or so. But I wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to Ocean Currents. You've been listening to KWMR. 90.5 Point Reyes Station and 89.9 Bolinas. Thanks so much, everybody. Enjoy the day. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. 
Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.